Would you please stand with me as we read the Word of God together? And please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, I will read verses 1 through 7. Again, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Peter writes, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands in the same way, Live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, it is our indescribable privilege to address you as our Father. We thank you that you accept us by your grace because of the work of Christ in our behalf. We thank you that now, as always, you are seated upon your throne in heaven and that you rule and reign over all things and that you do all that you do for your own glory and for the good of your people. Father, what is more, we thank you that now, as always, we are in your hands and that your hands are sovereign and wise and good. You are the one who is orchestrating every detail in our lives. You are the one who ordains every step that we take. And you do it all in wisdom and in love. We thank you that as we live in this life, that we have a hope that extends beyond the grave. We thank you as we gather on this Lord's Day that we meet on this first day of the week to celebrate that Jesus is alive, that he is risen, that he has conquered our sins, that he has defeated the devil and the grave. 
We thank you that we are in Christ, that we are no longer in our sins, and that we are no longer under your wrath, but in your grace. And Father, it is now the deepest desire, the deepest longing of our hearts to please you, to worship you, to honor you. I pray that as we give and as we sing and as we open your word here shortly, that we will do all of these things, O oh God, in a, in a way that is reverent and worshipful. I, I pray, O oh God, that you would meet with us, that you would open our hearts to you, that you would deliver us from going through the motions, merely on the outside. May our hearts not be far from you, but may our hearts be near to you. And may you please draw near to us in your love and in your kindness. Thank you that you are a shepherd to us. And that in you, we have no need to fear, to be afraid. We have every reason to trust. Father, we commend ourselves to you. We commend all of your people who gather all around the world to you. And we pray especially for those who are suffering, those who are suffering persecution, that you will give them the grace to suffer well and not to deny your name. Father, we pray all of this in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please open your Bibles with me once again to Colossians chapter 3. We are looking this morning at verse 19. The title of our message is The New Humanity at Home, Part 4. And as we begin our time in the Word of God, I want to read verses 18 and 19 in your hearing. The Apostle Paul writes, Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. This is the holy and sacred word of God. There are numerous words that can be used to rightly describe the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, one of which is the word revolutionary. According to one dictionary, the word revolutionary means bringing about a major or fundamental change. Using that definition, the ministry of Jesus was revolutionary on many levels, but it was especially revolutionary with regard to women. In a male chauvinistic culture where women were viewed as second-class citizens, Jesus' treatment of women was nothing less than revolutionary. It was completely countercultural to both the Gentile world and the Jewish world of the first century. And to demonstrate this, I would like to give you ten examples of how Jesus elevated women in his life and ministry, and you can find these on your sermon notes. Number one, Jesus affirmed women's equality with men. According to Jesus, both men and women are made equally in the image of God. 
Therefore, women are not second-class human beings, but fellow image bearers of God along with men. Number two, Jesus protected the rights and well-being of women. In a culture that permitted husbands to divorce their wives for any reason at all, Jesus protected women from being treated like property by restricting the cause of adultery, or of divorce rather, to adultery. Number three, Jesus conferred dignity upon women by often speaking to them in public. In a culture where it was not the norm for a man to speak with a woman, especially in public, the fact that Jesus often spoke to women even in public, was to say the least, unusual and surprising. In fact, when Jesus engaged in conversation with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, his disciples were amazed that he was speaking with a woman. Number four, Jesus expressed respect and care in how he spoke to women. Not only did Jesus speak often to women, he spoke to women in a manner that was respectful and with great care. He did not speak down to women in a demeaning way, which was common at that time. Number five, Jesus frequently ministered to women. And I've got a number of examples of that. They're listed under number five. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And if you read that passage in Mark chapter 1, it says that he took her by the hand and then he healed her. Jesus raised a widow's only son from the dead and he gave him back to her. That is one of my favorite passages in the entire word of God. A widow who had lost her husband, who lost her only son, Jesus interrupts the funeral procession, raises the boy from the dead, and gives him back to his mother. That is incredible. Jesus healed a woman who had suffered from a hemorrhage for 12 years, and he addressed her tenderly. He said, daughter, take courage, your faith has made you well. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, and he treated her with great tenderness. He took her by the hand, the Bible says. Further, Jesus healed a Canaanite woman's daughter of demon possession and commended her faith. He said, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. Number six in our list, Jesus was ministered to by women. And there are a few examples of this on your list. A sinful woman wet his feet with her tears, dried them with her hair, kissed his feet, and anointed him with perfume. And if you remember that account, a Pharisee was there. He thought to himself that Jesus was wrong for allowing such a sinful woman like that to touch him. Jesus rebuked that Pharisee and commended the woman's devotion as one who loved much because she was forgiven much. 
Also let her be a woman anointed Jesus with very costly perfume near the time of his death. Let her see Martha welcomed Jesus into her home and served him. She cooked him even meals. Then letter D, many women financially supported Jesus. Then number seven, Jesus used women as positive illustrations in his teaching. Number eight, Jesus taught women and had many female disciples. You have to recognize and understand that rabbis in that day did not normally have female disciples, but Jesus did. Number nine, Jesus' mother Mary played a prominent role in his ministry. He cared deeply for his mother. And then number ten, Jesus chose women to be the first witnesses of his resurrection. And that is quite extraordinary given the fact that women were not considered to be reliable witnesses in Jewish culture. And so again, I say to you, in the context of a male chauvinistic culture that viewed women contemptibly as second-class citizens, Jesus' treatment of women was nothing less than revolutionary. And his respectful and loving treatment of women is further expressed in the letters of the New Testament written by his apostles. That brings us to Colossians chapter 3. And so when you read and study Paul's letter to the Colossians, as we are doing now, you must realize that Paul is writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says that in the opening verse of this letter. In other words, in this letter and every other letter of Paul's in the New Testament, Paul is writing as a representative of Jesus Christ. He is writing in behalf of Christ, and he is communicating the authoritative will of Christ for his church. Paul is not writing his own opinions. He is writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this includes, of course, Paul's teaching on the distinctive roles of husbands and wives in the marriage relationship. Well, last week we began to look at Paul's instruction to Christian husbands in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 19, and the first point that we began to look at was Roman numeral 1 on your handout, the divine design for loving leadership in marriage. In verse 19 we read, Paul says, husbands, love your wives. You will note that Paul directly addresses the husbands in the church, and with regard to their distinctive role in the marriage relationship, he gives them a command. And we noted last time the very fact that Paul gives husbands a command of any kind was revolutionary in the ancient world because husbands normally did whatever they wanted to do in marriage. They didn't have obligations. But Paul teaches that not just wives... But husbands have obligations in the marriage relationship. And so Christian marriage is not a one-sided relationship by any means. We further noted that given the fact that Paul commands wives to submit to their husbands, we might expect Paul to command husbands to lead their wives. But that is not what he does. 
Paul's great burden is not that husbands will lead their wives, but how they will lead their wives. And so Paul commands husbands to love their wives, which was absolutely revolutionary in the ancient world. And so what does it mean for a husband to love his wife? We said it means that he is to seek her highest good. He is devoted to the highest good of his wife. From there, we turn to Ephesians 5, and let's do that once again today. We turn to Ephesians 5 last week. We will do so again today, where Paul gives the fullest and most comprehensive teaching in the New Testament on Christian marriage. In Colossians 3, Paul gives a summary of the husband's responsibility to love his wife, but in Ephesians 5, he expands upon that command for the husband to love his wife by demonstrating how he is to love his wife. If you look there in Ephesians 5 and verse 25, where Paul begins to address husbands, the first thing he tells them is the same thing that he says to the Colossians. Husbands, love your wives. But then in the rest of the passage, in verses 25b on down to the end of the chapter, Paul shows how a husband is to love his wife. And the pattern that husbands are to follow is Christ's love for the church. And so what are the characteristics of a husband's love for his wife? At the top of the list, Paul says that a husband is to love his wife with sacrificial love in verse 25. As Christ sacrificed himself for the highest good of the church, so too are husbands to sacrifice themselves for the highest good of their wives. And so husbands, it is your privilege, it is your obligation to sacrifice yourself for the needs of your wife. Secondly, a husband is to love his wife with special love, and we see this in a number of places here in Ephesians 5 and verse 25, verse 26, verse 27, verse 29. We see in these verses that Christ has a special, exclusive, particular love for his church as his bride, and in the same way, husbands are to love their wives with a special, particular, exclusive kind of love. Husbands, you are to love your wives like no other. She is the only woman for you. She and she alone is to be the object, the special object of your love. Thirdly, we saw a husband is to love his wife with sovereign love there in verse 25 where Christ lays down his life for the church. And we ask, why does Christ love the church in this way? with such sacrificial and special love. Why? Not because we were beautiful, we were marred by sin, not because we were deserving, we were rebels by nature. Christ has taken the church to be his beloved bride for one simple reason, because he chooses to. He loves us then with a sovereign love. And so, husbands, you are to love your wives unconditionally, even when you see your wife as unattractive or undeserving of your love. You are to love her not based upon her merit or her performance, but you are to love her, you are to choose to love her as Christ chooses to love you with sovereign love. 
Well, that brings us now to where we left off and where we pick up today. To a fourth characteristic of a husband's love, he is to love his wife with sanctifying love in verses 26 and 27. From a grammatical point of view, these two verses state the goal of Christ's love for the church. This is indicated by three purpose statements, all of which are expressed by the word so that or that. Look at the text carefully. Look at verse 26. So that he might sanctify her. That is a purpose statement stating his goal. Verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Also in verse 27, that she would be holy and blameless. So look at the words, so that, that, and that. So with what kind of love does Christ love his bride? With a sanctifying love. The goal of Christ's love for his bride is to make her holy. Jesus died on the cross for our sins in order to transform us into a holy bride, into a beautiful bride in his sight. In verse 25, Jesus gave himself up in death for the church, but why? For what purpose? Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her. He died for the church, that we would be a people set apart for himself. And the way Christ has set us apart as his very own bride is by washing us of our sin. Verse 26, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That is the word of the gospel. This is very interesting language because it was the Jewish custom for the bride to be washed before marriage. She would have a prenuptial bath. When God took Israel as his bride in Ezekiel chapter 16, he washed her. He washed her. And Christ did the same thing for his church. Christ died for his bride to make her his own by washing us of our sins. Paul continues in verse 27 that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. This further explains why Christ died for his bride. He died to wash away our sins in order that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory. Paul is now talking about that time when the bride is presented to the bridegroom in the marriage ceremony. And normally it was someone other than the bridegroom who presented the bride. But here Paul goes out of his way to emphasize that in this marriage between Christ and his bride, it is Christ and Christ alone who presents his bride to himself. It is Christ who prepares his bride for marriage by washing her. It is Christ who presents his bride, and he presents her to himself. It is Christ who does everything to make this marriage relationship happen. It is entirely the work of Christ, not the work of anyone else. 
And notice that Christ presents the church to himself in all her glory. This is the image of the great wedding ceremony at which time the bride is gloriously and radiantly beautiful. Just think of a wedding ceremony. When the bride enters into the room in her wedding gown and everybody stands and looks at her beauty. And that is the picture here of the bride walking into the room in all of her radiant glory, all of her beauty. Paul further describes the beauty of the church in the next phrase, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Christ died for his bride in order to make us a gloriously beautiful bride without any defect. This is a picture of our spiritual perfection. And therefore, it can't be a picture of who we are now. When you think about the church today, when you think about us today, we have many spots. We have many wrinkles, many flaws, many defects, many blemishes to our beauty. But Paul is speaking here of a glory that is a future glory. When the church's beauty will be perfected by the power of Christ on that great day in the future. And so one day the church will have no more spots, no more wrinkles, no more blemishes or any such thing. We will be perfect in our experience. We will be blameless in our experience. And this is the goal for which Christ died. Christ died to take a very sinful bride, a very ugly bride, and to transform her, to transform us into a perfectly beautiful and glorious bride in holiness. And so with that said, I now address husbands. Husbands, as Christ loves his bride with a sanctifying love, so too are you to love your wives with a sanctifying love. Christ is a sanctifying husband, and so should you be a sanctifying husband. Part of what it means for a husband to be the head of his wife, the leader in his family, is that he is to be her spiritual leader. He is to seek her spiritual sanctification and growth. And so, husbands, have you embraced your responsibility to be the spiritual leader of your wife? Have you embraced your responsibility to seek after your wife's spiritual growth and sanctification? Do you take that responsibility seriously? Now, obviously, no husband has the power in and of himself to make his wife holy, but you are to lead your wife in such a way that it promotes her growth and that it promotes her holiness. So are you a sanctifying husband? Would your wife be able to say that about you? Would she be able to say, my husband is a sanctifying husband? Do you love your wife in such a way that you seek her highest spiritual good? Here's a very convicting question. Is your wife more godly 
because of you? Is she more godly because of you? Do you shepherd your wife? Do you pray for your wife? Do you pray with your wife? Do you lead your wife in the word? Do you talk with your wife about God? Do you talk with your wife about her soul and about her walk with God? Do you move beyond the superficial, trivial, mundane, routine things of life and talk about the most important things in life, namely her relationship to God? Do you ever ask your wife how she is doing spiritually? Does that ever come up in your conversations? Do you help your wife to overcome her sins? When you see sinful patterns and attitudes in her life, how do you respond? Do you ignore them? Or do you express sinful anger toward her because of them? Or do you graciously seek to help your wife overcome her sins? Are you a sanctifying husband? Do you give your wife a godly example to follow? Well, husbands, I don't know about you, but I am thoroughly convicted. Thoroughly convicted. Well, that brings us to a fifth characteristic of a husband's love that we will look at this morning. He is to love his wife with sensitive love. In verses 28 to 30, as we move to this part of the text, I want you to notice Paul's emphasis on what may at first seem to be a very strange subject, self-love. In verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Also in verse 28, he who loves his own wife loves himself. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So in these two verses, Paul speaks about husbands loving themselves by loving their own bodies. And living in the 21st century, we might easily misunderstand what Paul is saying. This has nothing to do with the modern notion of self-esteem. It has nothing to do with the modern notion of body image. Paul is not talking about loving your body in the sense of being preoccupied with your appearance as people in our culture are consumed with. That is the last thing on Paul's mind as he writes this passage. But rather, he is talking about the natural care that everyone gives to their own bodies. All of us do this. We all provide for the needs of our own bodies. So let me ask you this question. Do you love your own body? Of course you do. I didn't ask, do you like your body image? But do you love your own body? Of course you do. And to prove that, let me offer some questions. Whose stomach do you feed? Every single day, maybe too many times in a day, 
your own stomach. Whose body do you bathe, hopefully, every single day? Your own body. Whose teeth do you brush, hopefully, a few times a day? Your own teeth. Whose hair do you have cut and comb and maybe even color? Your own. Whose body do you clothe several times a day? Your own. Whose body do you put in bed when it gets tired? Your own body. And whose body do you give medicine to or take to the doctor when you are sick? Your own body. You love your body. I love my body. We all care for the needs of our bodies. Now, with that in mind, follow what I say very carefully here. In Paul's instruction to husbands to love their wives, here in Ephesians chapter 5, he uses two different pictures, both of which have to do with Christ. The first picture is the love of Christ for his bride that was displayed on the cross in verses 25 to 27. This is where we see his sacrificial love, his special love, his sovereign love, and his sanctifying love for his bride. That is the first picture. And then in the second picture, we have the love of Christ for his bride that is displayed, listen carefully, in his union with his bride. And that is in verses 28 to 33. And what you will notice is that while Paul begins in verse 28 by talking about how a husband is to love his wife, it is based upon how Christ loves his bride. And one of the ways Christ demonstrates his love for his bride is in his union together with her, with us. And the glorious union of Christ with his bride is the basis of the union between a husband and a wife in marriage. So again, the two pictures are, number one, the death of Christ for his bride, and number two, the union of Christ with his bride. And both of these spiritual realities display the love of Christ for his bride that provides the pattern for husbands to follow. So with this in mind, let's now look at verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Notice the word ought. There is an oughtness here, a moral duty, a moral obligation in the sight of God. Husbands, it is your moral duty before God to love your wife as your own body. You have an innate, God-given desire to love, provide for, and protect your own body. As we've already demonstrated, you do this every day of your life. You are very sensitive to care for the needs of your own body. You are to love your wife the same way. But to be even more specific... And more precise, Paul is not saying that husbands are to love their own wives just as they love their own bodies. 
Notice the language carefully. Rather, what he is saying is that husbands are to love their own wives as their own bodies. Do you see the difference? There is a world of difference. What happens when a man and woman get married? There's a lot of ways you could answer that question, but something profound happens that is much, much bigger than a mere legal transaction. When a man and a woman get married, something happens that is way beyond simply satisfying the legal requirements of the state for marriage. When a man and a woman get married, listen, they become one. They become one. One body, one flesh. Glance down to verse 31. Paul is quoting Ephesians, or Genesis chapter 2, rather. He says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In Matthew 19, Jesus quotes the very same verse from Genesis chapter 2, and he comments saying this, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. And so one plus one in marriage equals one. One plus one in marriage equals one. In my own relationship with my wife, I I don't know where my life ends and hers begins. Because we are one flesh. We are so intertwined one with the other. We are in union together. And so a husband is to love his wife as his own body because she is now part of him. She is now part of him. They are one flesh. And so husbands, do you understand that your wife is now part of you? You are not merely a couple. You are not merely partners. You are one flesh. Your wife then is not your nanny. She is not your cook. She is not your sex partner. She is part of you. You are one flesh with her. You have a wonderful union with your wife that has profound implications for how you are to love her. As a Christian husband. That is what Paul means in the next phrase. He who loves his own wife loves himself. As you love your wife, you love yourself. How? Because she's part of you. You're one. On your notes, there is a quote from Skevington Wood who speaks of our union in marriage, it's so good. He says this, So intimate is the relationship between man and wife that they are fused into a single entity. For a man to love his wife is to love himself. She is not to be treated as a piece of property, as was the custom in Paul's day. She is to be regarded as an extension of a man's own personality and so part of himself. Again, there is this wonderful mystical union that is shared between a Christian husband and a Christian wife. Paul further explains this in verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it 
Paul is saying that it is unnatural to hate your own body. It is unnatural not to care for the needs of your own body. When you become hungry, you seek food. When you become thirsty, you seek drink. When you are tired, you seek rest. When you are cold, you seek warmth. When you are attacked, you seek protection. These things are natural to us. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And with that same kind of sensitivity that a man nourishes and cherishes his own body, this is how he is to love his wife. But notice what Paul says next. Just as Christ also does the church. And so here is the comparison. Here is Paul's second picture of Christ's love for the church. Why does Christ cherish and nourish the church? Verse 30, because we are members of his body. So here is us and here is Christ. And we are brought into vital union with him. We are members of his body. What does this say about our relationship to Christ? We we are part of him. We are one with him. We are in solidarity with Christ. And so when you think about Christ's relationship with you, with us, he didn't take us to be his bride, only to abandon us. He is not an absent husband. He is not a passive husband. Instead, he is constantly nourishing and cherishing us as part of his own person. Peter O'Brien on your note says, Let each husband then follow Christ's example and be wholehearted in loving and tenderly caring for his wife. And he's right. So I think the best way to describe these verses where Paul is exhorting husbands to love their wives, is that this is the kind of love that is a sensitive love. A Christian husband is to be strong for his wife, but he is also to be sensitive with his wife. He is to be tough on the one hand and tender on the other hand. He's to be both. And so husbands, just as you are very sensitive to care for the needs of your own body, and just as Christ is very sensitive to care for the needs of his body, you are to be sensitive about meeting the needs of your wife, who is part of your body, who is in union with you. Be sensitive about nourishing your wife, about cherishing your wife as Christ does his wife. When your wife is hurt, then you are hurt. When your wife rejoices, then you rejoice because you are one flesh. Whatever affects your wife is to affect you because she is now part of your body. Her needs are your needs because she is part of you. And so let me now apply this by asking some questions And I ask these questions not just of you, but also of myself. Husbands, do you love your wife with a sensitive love? 
Do you love your wife as your own body? Does your wife feel cared for? If someone were to ask your wife, does your husband really care for you? What would she say? Does your wife feel protected by you? Does she feel safe because of you? Are you providing for her needs both physically and spiritually? Do you talk with your wife? Sometimes I will go to a restaurant and I will see a couple and I don't know any details of their life, but they sit at the table and don't ever talk. And it's sad to think about being in marriage and having nothing to talk about. Husbands, do you talk with your wife? Maybe even more importantly, do you listen to your wife? When your wife is hurt, do you hurt? When she rejoices, do you rejoice? Are her needs your needs? Husbands, Christ loves you with a sensitive love. And you are to also love your wife with a sensitive love. Well, there is still more for us to see and to learn in Ephesians 5 and Colossians chapter 3, but we will have to wait until next time. So we will devote at least one more message to the role of the husband in marriage. And then we will discuss other things related to the marriage relationship overall from a biblical perspective. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is so clear, it is so powerful. We are, we are left with a very clear revelation of how we are to live and function within marriage. We thank you that according to your infinite wisdom, you created the institution of marriage and family and that you have designed it in such a way where the husband and the wife have complementary roles that when lived out are beautiful and God-honoring. We thank you for the instruction that we have seen this morning given to husbands. And Father, I pray that every husband that is part of this church will take these things very seriously and will seek to live out these truths in their own home. Father, I pray that you will bring help and grace and conviction where that may be necessary. And as we think about these things related to marriage, we are especially grateful that the basis of these things is the relationship that Christ has with the church. And so, Father, we thank you that Christ gave himself for us, that he might take a very sinful bride and make her into a beautiful and glorious bride. And we thank you that Christ has taken us and brought us into union with himself so that we are now part of his body. We are one with Christ. We thank you for these glorious truths, and I pray that you will cause them to create tremendous joy 
and strength in our own hearts. And may they be the pattern that we as husbands seek to follow in how we treat our own wives. Father, we thank you for all of these things, and we give ourselves to you once again in the name of your Son. Amen.